Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks that we can dive deep into your word today. We thank you for the transforming power of your, your word. Thank you that it can cut deep into our hearts. Father, just pray that this morning you'll soften our hearts, you'll open us up to your word and your teaching. Father, you have something for each one of us this morning and just help us to take that on board and to, uh, to grow in our faith and in our love for you. Father, just, uh, just help your spirit to speak to us this morning as we listen to your word and the preaching this morning. Just be with Duncan as he, as he shares with us. Just give him your words and uh, his grace be upon him. In your name we pray. Amen. The Bible reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, and is titled, Lawsuits Among Believers. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world and you, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and your sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Naomi. Uh, g'day, friends. It's great to be here. And uh, as we're reading through this, as Shane mentioned, really important part of 1 Corinthians, all about the way in which the gospel transforms our relationships together in the church. Um, but uh, it, uh, uh, what we're thinking about today is this kind of transformation in these relationships. And you know when, uh, when relationships go wrong, uh, it's kind of a public, it can be a public thing, right? So um, there's famous, lots of famous examples of family feuds that get played out in public. Maybe you're up with the latest royal family dramas. I don't know. I'm not really up to, with that. Uh, maybe you've heard about um, 
The Australia's richest woman, Gina Reinhart, is in the papers every now and again over a very public dispute over their inheritance. The most bizarre one I heard of, as I was kind of looking into this, was a New York hotel heiress who caused mayhem in her family when, when she died, she left $12 million to her dog and, and nothing to two of her grandkids. Okay, uh, and apparent, apparently this dog had so many death threats against it that they had to spend $100,000 a year on security for the dog. So, and, and you kind of look on from afar, right? You think, <laughs> you know, bizarre. Um, but you also think that there must have been a long history of sadness and dysfunction and brokenness and hurt behind these, what's going, you know, what we see. You think this isn't how families should relate together, Right? And you also think, I wouldn't want to be part of that family. <laughs> like, it, it just wouldn't be a pleasant environment to be, a, a good environment to be in. You, well, it's on a different scale, but there's something similar going on in the church in Corinth that Paul's writing this letter to. There's something similar going on. It wasn't just that they had tensions with one another and disagreements. They kind of were taking it to the next level, to a whole nother level. And it revealed this real, real grasping, proud spirit that was totally against who they actually were in Christ. Uh, and so as we've seen, as we've heard, um, this series, we're all about the relationships revolution that Jesus brings about. Uh, and over the few chapters, the focus really is on sex and relationships and marriage and singleness. Uh, this, this was one of the main issues in the church in Corinth and one of the main issues in our society today. But it's a broader thing than that. Uh, there, this, this revolution Jesus brings about impacts all of our relationships, every part of life. And so what we get in this little section we're looking at this morning is uh, this other issue that's going on in the church, this other issue that's going on that Paul zooms in on. Verse 1 should come up on the screen. Uh, he says, If any of you has a dispute with another... Do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? So there's these, these disputes going on, um, and it, we, we don't know all the details, but it seems like uh, the kind of issues that might have to do with money or property or inheritance, or we, we just don't know all the kind of specifics, but there's these disputes, and Paul says, instead of sort of working it out amongst yourselves in the church, you're going to the courts. You're taking each other to court. Now, before we dive too much into this, there is something really important to clarify right at the start. And especially if you heard this read out and you're thinking, oh, okay, I don't know how this... Uh, things go really bad when serious issues are dealt with in-house. Maybe you've been in an environment where that's been the case. So it's just really helpful, I think, to clarify right up front that Paul's not talking about criminal cases here. Um, so, for instance, you, you think of cases of domestic violence or abuse. Uh, that's not what's in view here um, in terms of what's going on. And we can know that for a few reasons. In, in another one of his letters, um, Paul in Romans 13 calls us to submit to the governing authorities because they're put in place by God to punish those who do wrong. And, and so, so for, for instance, in our church, we gladly comply, um, not just comply, but sort of embrace uh, all the requirements that are required of us around child safety in our church. Uh, and if there's a case of, of abuse, the first place you go to is the authorities, right? Our church must be a safe place for vulnerable people 
not a haven for abusers, as churches too often tragically have been. So I just want to get that out at the start. That's not what's going on in Corinth, that kind of scenario. That's not what's going on in Corinth. It might help to think if the law is kind of basically divided into criminal law and civil law, if that makes sense, what's going on is more in the civil law kind of realm. In verse 2, Paul talks about trivial cases. So there's these trivial cases that are getting blown out of all proportion in the church. Uh, Down in verse 8, you can see they're cheating and wronging each other. Uh, The the, the picture I reckon you get, it's it's kind of like an ancient Judge Judy courtroom. I don't know if you remember Judge Judy. She's like celebrity, no-nonsense judge, televises her courtroom. And usually she relies on, uh, she, she issues rules on things that are pretty, they're pretty petty, right? And you think, come on, guys, like, can't you just sort this out? Uh, but, so there's that kind of thing going on uh, in this church. But Corinth was this really proud city. And it seems like what's happening is the church is being more shaped by the culture outside than by the gospel, Uh, They'd grown up within the church, this culture of greed, of kind of people easily taking offence at each other, of people insisting that they had their rights over and against someone else's. And and it's not only that, the the civil courts in ancient Rome were, were known for their corruption. They kind of would preference the strong over the weak and the rich over the poor. So it might have been something like this, a bit of an imagination exercise. Imagine Achilles sitting over here somewhere. He's in the Apollos faction, okay? Uh, And a few months back, he borrowed a chariot from Hippocrates, who's up the back there somewhere. Uh, And Hippocrates is in the Paul faction, so you've already got some strife going on. Uh, Anyway, when Achilles returned it, Hippocrates noticed this crack in one of the wheels. And not only that, a scratch down the side of his his, uh, shiny new chariot, And he's furious, okay? So he goes to Achilles, and he doesn't actually go straight to Achilles. He just goes straight to the courts. He takes Achilles to courts. Uh, Of course, Achilles denies it all. He says that they were there when he borrowed it. And and he starts spreading rumours about Hippocrates, about how what a charlatan and a fraud he is. Anyway, uh, along the way, Melita has been brought in as a witness. She's from the Kephas faction, by the way, so she doesn't like either of these guys. Uh, and apparently she saw Achilles driving recklessly around town, so she's brought in as a, as a witness. But Philemon down here, he reckons it wasn't Achilles at all in the, in the chariot, and Melita's just stirring the pot. Anyway, Hippocrates is pretty certain he's going to win anyway. After all, he's a town councillor, and Achilles is just a pleb, and we're pretty sure Hippocrates has the judge in his pocket anyway. Okay, so... You get the, you, do you get the picture of what's going on? Uh, you know, entirely fictional, but those kinds of things blowing out of proportion. And Paul's hearing about this stuff going on, and he can't believe it. He can't believe it. Uh, you sort of, I reckon you can see him pulling his hair out as he's sitting there writing this letter down. Um, last week we saw, we saw how he was writing. He said, not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children... But do you see what, what's going on here? Look down in verse 5. He says, he kind of changes his tone altogether. All I say this to shame you. Is it possible? Is it possible that there's nobody wise enough 
to judge a dispute between believers. There's nobody wise enough. Uh, do you remember when we looked at back, way back in chapter 1 of uh, 1 Corinthians? The, these Corinthians were priding themselves on being wise according to the wisdom of Corinth. But Paul says they, they're, not, they're not wise. They don't have the true wisdom of the cross. They're cheating and hurting each other in the public courts. And it's such a serious issue that Paul, he, he does want them to feel ashamed at this point. He does want to shame them. There's a, there's a kind of appropriate um, shame that they should be feeling because of the wreck they're making of their relationships. And, and Paul says, even if you win, you lose. Even if you win, you lose. You've lost. You've lost in what really counts. Verse 7, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? So you see what's going on. In trying to defeat one another in the law courts, they've missed the fact that they're already defeated simply by getting to that point in their relationship. They're, all, they're, both, they're already defeated. If they valued God's church like God values his church, if they could see that what's going on through the wisdom of the cross, they would value and pursue peace in God's church more than their personal rights. So Hippocrates, I imagine he would just shrug his shoulders about the scratch on his chariot. And if he found out about it, Achilles would offer to pay for it even if he wasn't sure whether he'd done it or not. Because the health of their church family is so much more important to them than things like possessions or, or their own pride. So that's what's going on. And Paul sees this big problem. They're already defeated. But there's this other problem that's going on. Uh, it, it's not just that they're all, they've already been defeated by ending up in the courts. It's that they're bringing God's family, the church, into disrepute in the world around them. Uh, verse 6, you see that? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and, and at this point, you, I reckon Paul's really tearing his hair out, and this in front of unbelievers. So, you know, it's just like, you know, how we thought about celebrity family feuds at the start, and you, you look at that and you think, gee, I'm glad I'm not part of that family. <laughs> that's, what ha that's what's happening here in the family of God. People look on, and think, if that's what it means to belong to Jesus' family, then count me out. Look how they treat each other with such grasping selfishness and greed. So they're kind of trashing the name of Jesus in public, in front of the world. But there's another problem Paul has in view. And it's really the biggest one of them all. Um, he's, Paul sees this way of life that he's he's observing and he's heard about in this church. He sees this way of life that's characterized by greed and self-centeredness, by insisting on my rights over yours. Don't know how else to put this. He basically sees that way of life as a way of life that's on the road to hell. Uh, 
Like last week, we're not talking about sin that is acknowledged and repented of. What we're talking about here is this ongoing, public, unrepentant, sinful ways of life. And Paul's strong warning here is that persisting in these ways of life means you won't inherit God's kingdom. So he talks about things that have to do with matters of sexuality. That's the broader topic, but also matters that are broader than that, all about how we relate to one another. Verse 9, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. So these guys thought they were doing something entirely reasonable, right, in this church. They thought, okay, I'm just standing up for my rights. See what Paul says? No, 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 there's actually something much more serious going on. They're not only defeated here and now in what really matters, in the health of God's family here and now. They're not only defeated there, unless they repent and turn to Christ in dependence on his spirit, they're in serious danger of an eternal defeat, of being disinherited from God's kingdom altogether. That's how important our relationships are with one another in God's church. Well, we're going to continue thinking about these things next week as we keep reading through what chapter 6. But there's, there's so many things going on, so many problems that Paul sees in this church. But what Paul does with this is what he does all through his letter and is just so helpful for us and so wonderful. He takes the mess of life, right? and there's no doubting that this church is in an absolute mess he takes the mess of life and he applies the beautiful remedy of the gospel to it. He applies the remedy of the gospel. The gospel is not about what we do, but about what God has done in Jesus and by his spirit as he brings us to faith in him. And so Paul's response to all this is basically to keep reminding them of who they are. Because of the gospel. All, all the way through, he says, do you notice as we read through, do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? They should know this. But they've forgotten. They're kind of living as if the gospel wasn't true, as if the gospel didn't transform all part of their life, every part of life. And they're denying who they now are in Christ. What Jesus has done for them and in them, it's so revolutionary. It's this total transformation. He's given them a whole new life. I did not, he's, he, he's given them this incredible future. Maybe that stood out to you as we read through. Um, verse 2, do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? 
How much more the things of this life? So, uh, look, there's lots of details that we just don't know, but the consistent, consistent teaching of the Bible is, in some way, God's people will be involved in his judgment on the final day. I think it works something like this. If you're a Christian, you are united to Jesus by faith. You are in Christ. You're united to him. So as he returns and judges the world, in some way, in some way, you will too. And if that's true, if that's where you're headed, if that's the glorious future that awaits you, then as you grow to maturity in Christ, as you get to know him more and more, that has, that has to make you competent to sort out the, the petty squabbles that you're facing here and now, right? So a new future, but not only that, this new family. Uh, you notice that on the way through, verse 6, but instead, uh, this is part of, one of the reasons why Paul's so worked up about this is because they're brothers taking one another to court. One brother takes another to court. Or down in verse 8, instead you yourselves cheat and do wrong, you do this to, to your brothers and sisters. See what Paul's doing? He's highlighting the truth about their relationships together. Church is not just a loose uh, kind of collection of individuals who all happen to have a bit of a common interest, you know? Uh, it's not a community of people that you kind of, uh, that all of whom uh, you get on really well with. It's not a club, <laughs> a social club that you kind of uh, come and go from. The church is your family your spiritual family, your eternal family. And Paul wants the Corinthians, and he wants us to remember that, to remember that when we have these disputes, when things get tough, to persevere in seeking peace, in giving up your rights for the sake of others. So Paul's saying, do you not know the glorious future that awaits you? Do you not know that you have a new family here and now in God's church. But lastly, do not know that you have a whole new identity. The clearest picture of their new identity is found in the, the wonderful verse 11, where Paul says, And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I just want to zone in on a little bit on those three things that Paul says. He wants the Corinthians, he wants us to settle these things in our minds. Do you not know this is true? Yes, you can know this is true. You have been washed. There you go. <laughs> that was the best image I could come up with. You've been washed. All the dirt of sin completely washed away. Totally cleansed. We're going to sing a song uh, in a little while called "What Can Wa Oh Nothing But the Blood of Jesus." It goes, "What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus." Now, more, more literal thinkers among us, I've had conversations with people uh, where they will say something like, "What's going on there?" Like, I'm not sure washing in blood would make me cleaner than before. You know, but it's not. It's talking about a spiritual cleansing, and it's a really powerful image. Sin leaves a stain. It makes us dirty. And just like this dog, <laughs> you know, you're not going to let the dog into the house. 
like that, until it's washed off, our stain of sin means we can't enter God's kingdom until it's dealt with. And that's exactly what the blood of Jesus does. Because he gave up his life in your place. You are now clean. Do you notice this, and this is critical, do you notice as we read that, it's all in the past tense. Not you, you were clean, now you're dirty, and then you might be clean again, and then you, you were washed. You were washed. If you've come to Jesus in repentance and faith, you have been washed clean, completely. It's who you are. Every sin, past, present, and future, is covered and washed away by his blood. You don't need to live under the burden of shame and guilt. Paul does, did want kind of a particular kind of shame for these guys, if you remember, but that ongoing burden of shame and guilt is washed away at the cross. You can know that you are a child of his grace that you can come and rest in his embrace. You have been washed. The second word Paul wants us to settle in our hearts, to sink deeply into us, is that you were sanctified. You're sanctified. Uh, this is an image of something that's sanctified, I think. Um, we saw this last week. Oh, oh, no, we saw the word holy. We're thinking about holiness last week. Uh, holiness and sanctification is the same kind of idea. Uh, to be holy is to be set apart for a special purpose, to kind of be set apart for something special. Uh, and that's what's going on when you're saying, you were sanctified, you were made holy, you were set apart. Uh, that's, it's like this um, special silverware, right? Anyone? Ha- I, we don't have any special silverware, so if you come around to our place, we won't get it out for you. Uh, but some of you might. Um, you might have the, you know, the, the special cupboard where only when once a year you have the um, the you know really really special meal. This this it's a holy thing, right? And it's set apart for this special purpose. Uh, that's the kind of thing that Paul has in mind. You have been set apart for a special purpose. Um, sanctification gets talked about in different ways in the Bible. Sometimes we talk about it as the ongoing sort of sanctification in your life. You grow in, in godliness through your life. But it's also, we see here, it's also a completed reality. You have been sanctified. We're being made holy in our experience here and now, but we're we're being made holy because we are already holy in Christ. You are sanctified, set apart for the special purpose of living for God's glory and enjoying him forever. Not so you can progress your own agendas not so that you can look out for your own rights. You've been washed, you've been sanctified, and lastly, you've been justified. The, the idea of this word is it's a courtroom kind of word. It's like the, the, the gavel has descended and you've been declared just. You've been declared in the right, innocent, righteous. God's cosmic law court has made its verdict And all because of Jesus, you, if you are trusting in him, are already, you have been declared right, put right with God. You have a status 
of righteous. It's kind of this sign that's blaring over your head whenever God looks at you. Jesus' perfect righteousness, or to use another image, you've been clothed in his righteousness. So when God looks at you, he says, yes, you are justified. You are righteous in my sight. Three things, three critical things. And can you see how those things are going to shape, they must shape our life together in God's family. They must shape it. If God has done this for me, if he has given himself up in Jesus so I could be washed clean, set apart for his glory, justified before him, how could I go out of my way to try to cheat a brother or sister? <laughs> or cut people out of my life? Um, that's a big thing, actually, at the moment. The, it's, the wisdom of this world says, cut toxic people out of your life. Uh, I saw this satirical article headline a couple of weeks ago that read, God decides to cut all toxic people out of his life, 7.5 billion dead. <laughs> I thought it was very funny. But you, get, but you get the point, right? God doesn't relate to you like that. The, the wisdom of the cross is that God has done all this for you. He has taken the cost of your sin on himself so you can be washed, sanctified, justified. He has come to you by his spirit to draw you to himself and to receive this free gift. So I love how Paul's response, it's not just to point out how destructive their behaviour is. It is incredibly destructive. He turns their eyes to the riches of what they have in Jesus, of who they now are in Jesus. And so much of our tensions and arguments come, I reckon, from our insecurity, from our kind of grasping onto the things of this life as if they were ultimate, um, as if we need them at all costs. But you see, what the wonderful news of the gospel is that you already have everything in Jesus. You have a glorious future. You are a member of his family. You have been washed and set apart and declared righteous. So you don't need to relate to one another out of fear or insecurity because you're already completely secure in him. You already have an overflowing abundance in him which means you can just easily let go of things in this life for his sake. His grace has been poured out on you to fill you up and then to overflow to your brothers and sisters around you. So we have this revolutionary transformation, a whole new you. And you know the catch cry of today? You might have heard this, you do you. Anyone sort of heard people say that? Uh, you just shrug your shoulders and say, oh, well, you do you, okay? And there's something to that. You kind of, it's, a, it's a cry to live authentically to who you really are. But the key question is, who are you? Who are you? According to the world's wisdom, you find out who you are by looking inside yourself. Uh, it can be appealing at first, uh, but... I think we're clearly seeing the fruits of this vision in the kind of rising narcissism of our society and 
lowering resilience and more mental health problems. It's, it's not delivering the peace that it promises. Who are you? Friends, if you're a Christian, this is who you are. You are someone who, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, has been washed clean, cleansed, fully accepted and delighted in by your heavenly Father. You are someone who is set apart, set apart from the world for a special purpose, to bring glory to God in your life by a life of thankful obedience to him. You are someone who has been justified, declared righteous. And what Paul's basically saying here is not you do you, it's you do the new you. You do the new you, the real you. The you that you discover not by looking inward, but by looking upward. The you that you don't have to kind of anxiously create in your own strength. The you that you receive as a free gift in Christ and by his spirit. So what would it look like, wrap things up here, what would it look like for us to do the new, for you to do the new you um, in our church community, our church family, particularly when it comes to issues of conflict and tension? In any community, disputes arise, tensions come, relationships are put under strain, and our church is no different each situation is unique and complex, usually very complex in my experience. But what we're given here in God's word is so invaluable to help us to persevere, not to run away or lash out, but to persevere in cross-shaped love, in cross-shaped wisdom, as we live out who we really are, our new identity in Christ. So maybe... Here's a few maybes coming out of it. Maybe there's someone that you need to arrange a time to catch up with, to apologise for how you've been relating to them uh, out of kind of insecurity and greed, not grace, maybe out of, more out of envy than out of love. Maybe you're holding on to a bitterness that you realise is creating a wedge between you and someone else, a brother or a sister and that you need to bring that to God and ask him to help you to fill your vision with just how secure and at rest and filled up you really are in Christ. And out of that secure position, to let go of the bitterness that has taken root in your heart. Maybe you're someone who's quick to take offence, quick to speak an angry or a harsh word, quick to gossip about someone. And you've realised this morning, no, that is not who I am. That's not who you are. That is a way of life more at home in hell than in heaven. And you need to humbly come in prayer to your Father and ask him by your spirit to help you to live more and more as you truly are in Christ. Whatever it is, this is what you can know for sure, friends. If you are Christ, if you've come to him by faith, put your trust in him, received his spirit, been given this whole new life, this is who you are. Those other way of life, the ways of life uh, might have been true once, but now 
Well, no longer, because you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let me pray. Our gracious Father, what a transformation that you have brought about in, in us. Each of us has so, so far to go, but we thank you for the reminder this morning that we actually have, in Christ, been fully tr transformed already. We've been washed clean. We've been set apart. We've been made right, declared to be righteous. Our God, help us to live in line with who we really are. To help us to, to do the new you, um, to, to know who we are in Christ and not to live according to the wisdom of this world, especially when we have disputes or frictions or tensions. Give us grace to live as your people, as brothers and sisters united in the gospel. And we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.